Hello and welcome back to TGE's Current Read. I am Sam Herbst and my guest today is Cecile Pinn, author of the standout debut novel Wandering Souls. Cecile, once an editorial assistant for Penguin Random House, is now a full-time writer. She also contributes to Books Magazine Bad Form Review and was longlisted for their Young Writers Prize. She's also a 2021 London Writers Award winner and was longlisted for the UK's Women's Prize for Fiction for Wandering Souls. Welcome, Cecile. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, The success of this debut, uh, Cecile, has really been incredible and so well-deserved. Um, it's like I mentioned, it's on my list of recommendations now with Arundhati Roy's uh, God of Small Things, and it will go down in history as a book that had me sobbing, um, which is really unusual for me. But Cecile, just firstly, congrats on this oh, accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very kind. <laughs> so for those of um, for those who are listening who might not know about the book or what Wandering Souls is about, what in your words, from the author, elevate a picture to us. What is this book about? Sure. So Wandering Souls is a book that's partly based on my my family history of my, my mom, um, who was a Vietnamese boat person who left um, Vietnam after the Vietnam War. Um, but so the book follows three siblings, Anne, Tan and Min, who leave Vietnam um, after the war and spend uh, some time at a refugee camp in Hong Kong before settling in the UK in the late 70s, early 80s, and which is the sort of Margaret Thatcher era. So it's a time of really great political and societal upheaval. And it's really um, the three siblings trying to build new lives for themselves there, uh, while also dealing with immense grief, because on the journey, they've lost their parents and and four of their younger siblings. Uh, and so the book also includes a bit of nonfiction elements and is a bit of a... Um, questions you know the purpose of writing and and explores just the, the Vietnamese diaspora in the UK and, and um try and explores also the the concept of of mourning and grieving I loved learning about this era I don't know much I was born in 1987 to give away my age so I didn't I didn't I knew of you know Margaret Thatcher and England living in South Africa you know colony of of the UK or former colony of the UK and um I I didn't know a lot about this history and it was such a a pleasure well not not a pleasure knowing about what happened but just to to learn and grow um I'd love to know more about your process how much did you learn and grow and what in the first place inspired you to start writing Wandering Souls? Yes, yeah, so I, I didn't know much about the, the Vietnamese uh, diaspora in the UK, and I think it's not one that's been very, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think there's been a lot of, of books or movies or anything written about it, so I really wanted to kind of shine a light on that. And my mom, you know, she moved to France instead of the UK, so that's when the, the book is very much fictional in that sense, but I was uh, inspired to write this book from my, my family history and, and uh just from a desire of wanting to to know more about my my past and where I came from and my identity as well. And and I decided to set the book in the UK because I think that, as I said, not alone, not a lot is known about that that diaspora and that history uh, of that part of that part of the country, really. Um and I've been living here for almost 10 years and I just uh just really wanted that those people to be seen even for just a few hundred pages. So I think that's really 
all those elements kind of came together and, and that's when I decided to write the book. Going into the actual text, um, your experience of learning about your family's history was fragmented and you've mentioned so this novel is it's historical fiction so it's inspired and partly based on your family history but you can't take it as I mean your family went to France this Mm -hmm. family goes to the UK it is different you have separated the experiences but you've fragmented the narrative so can you chat more about your decision to structure the book in this way sure so yeah I think it was important for me both both mentally and also as a as a writer to make the book fictional and to give myself that kind of creative freedom as well to make the characters my own and and um you know just the story it's its own thing um so i made the decision quite early on to change the setting from the tr- from what happened to my family and also to not ask my family and my mom too many questions because i really wanted the characters to not be based on on real person, to not be based on my mom and uncles and so on. Um, and then I, I was really interested when writing the book as well about the the idea of why someone would write such a book because it requires a lot of research and it required me to learn a lot of, of things that I that were tough. You know, for example, the sexual assault or the um, the violence that would go on at the camp and on on the boat journey and and so on and um, so I was really interested in exploring as well the, the the purpose of writing and the kind of cathartic quality that writing can have. And so I that kind of I brought those more essay-like nonfiction elements in the book and also the the concept of mourning that I think varies from culture to culture. And this book is quite multicultural in some ways, right? Because it takes place in, in Vietnam and in the UK. Um and um just the idea of how can how one person can move on from trauma and how can one person grow and and how can trauma affect different people and different generations um as well and i also wanted to set the book in real life and and show readers that this is even though the characters in, or in that particular story is, is fictional this is something that really happened right and there really were those uh, boat people who came to the uk during that time and and uh, so i think the best way for me to do that was to include some kind of newspaper-like articles and and a real, you know, meeting minutes that Mark from Margaret Thatcher and a real, for example, the book also includes a real life letter that she sent to um, a little Vietnamese boy mm. um, at a camp. So I think just including those real life elements helped set the book in the real world as well. So that that um, nonfiction part of the book was that. directly extracted or did was that fiction on your part did you write that as fiction or did you pull from actual newspaper cuttings um so it kind of depends so the latter I left as is and then the the newspaper articles I I wrote them I they're based on facts and stuff but I uh kind of wrote them myself uh if that makes sense but I kind of like the idea of merging fiction and nonfiction and letting it up uh, be up to the readers to decide if they want to make that extra step and Google what's actually really or not really in the book. In the book. For example, there's the book talks about Operation Wandering Soul, which is um, which it's a real life operation that the U.S. Army undertook during the war. But um, a lot of people um, 
even my agent didn't really realize that that was mm-hmm. a real thing and that that operation really took place. And so I like that idea of, well, that the book is a bit of an invitation for readers to to make their own research if they want to as well. So I did actually research Operation Wandering Soul. <laughs> um, and I did do, do some Googling. And that's what I love about this genre is because it prompts you to, to separate fact from fiction. And not I don't do it to fact check authors, but I do it to know more. And um, ensconcing it in fiction in that way gets me really hyped about learning about these things. So Ocean Vuong calls Wandering Souls genre-defying, which based on, on the, the, you know, the different you can't really call it mediums, but a sort of narrative st- structures that you use, um, that's what makes it genre-defying, is you have this, this the story, the main story arc, and then you have, you know, all of the different non-fiction elements that you've added. Um, so we've spoken about that, and we haven't spoken about the poetry interspersed with the news reports, journal articles, um, there's the poetry. Tell me about your research um, for this book. You know, were there some puzzles? I'm I'm curious to know because I know that you wrote really late at night. You had a full-time job. It was 2020. It was a high-pressure-filled environment at a time where a lot of writers and creatives were ingesting more than creating. But you created during this time and you had a full-time job. So was it a lonely endeavor and was there anything that surprised you? Um, or motivated you as as you delved into that research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely quite a lonely uh, moment for me and I think for the whole world, really, because we weren't allowed to go out for, for some of that year. But um, uh, a lot of the research was just me on my computer late at night, Googling archival, um, you know, documents and, and looking at testimonies and and photographic evidence as well so I could get the description of the camps right for example um and it was hard especially as I said before like learning about the the hardships of the journey and the you know the the sexual assault and so on Mm. that would that would happen um at times so it was um hard I think and then looking back it's all it's all a bit of a blur I can't really really remember (laughs) writing it I think it was for that book it was probably useful for me to be in such a, a bubble um, and just to have that focus and that quietness as well. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I, looking back, I think I wrote the first draft in about six months or so. So it was quite an intense uh, period as well. But the, And then it was nice to have that mix of genre because it allowed me to have some breaks. And if I wanted to take a break from the, the research, I could go and write the the Dao parts, Dao, who's their their diseased little brother, who kind of talks to the narrators in a place from in between the living and the dead, and who, which are the most, I guess I don't call them poetry because I didn't mean it to be poetry, but um, I guess the the kind of more poetic uh, chapters of the book who who have a bit of a different structure. Mm. So that was quite nice to be able to to shift between different parts of the book as well. Operation Wandering Souls, as you've mentioned, is a real event that happened. And in in um, 
BookTok and Bookstagram, there's a trend to where when as you're reading, when you find the title, you hash you hashtag found the title. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Wandering Souls is obviously where where it came in. Operation Wonder, well, Operation Wandering Souls is obviously where the title mm-hmm. comes in. What ex- what exactly was it? Because this, do you mind sharing that? Is it too much of a spoiler for the reader? No, no, of course. So. Um- so yeah, Operation Wandering Soul was a real-life operation that the U.S. Army undertook during the, the Vietnam War, uh, which played on the Vietnamese belief that if you don't bury your dead properly uh, in their hometown, then they'll be left to wander for eternity as ghosts or as wandering souls uh, and unable to rest. So what the U.S. Army did is that they would play in the jungle those tapes, and you can listen to one of them online. It's called Ghost Tape Number 10. Uh, so tapes that were supposed to mimic the sound of diseased Viet Cong soldiers sing like with very airy, strange sounds and sing things like, comrade, like, you know, look at me now, like I'm diseased and stuff like that. And and the goal was basically to, to scare off and to uh, demoralize the Viet Cong army. Uh, so it's a very strange uh, operation. And I think... Um, I was quite struck by the the title of it because it's quite it sounds quite poetic. I think Operation Wandering yes, Soul in yes. some way. <laughs> um, so I, I was very interested in that, and I think all the characters in the book, in some ways, are wandering souls, one way or another. Right. So you've got mm. Dao, who's who's a literal wandering soul, a ghost, and then I think also Anne, Tan, and Min, the siblings. They they found themselves in the UK. Um, alone orphans and and they're not quite sure which way their lives should go what they should be doing because their their parents are not here anymore and so i think they are a bit wandering souls as well so i i I quite like the idea that that title linked the characters in some way i love dao i i found him to be such an endearing character from the get-go and i think that's i'm an i'm an older sister or a sister and i'm a mother and on Aunt takes on this mothering role, you know, obviously she she takes care of her younger sibling. She's the oldest and they go through this this trauma and so she she kind of takes her brothers under the under her wing. Um but included in this is, is Dao. So as a writer, I'm I'm wondering I mean he's four, right? At the time of yes. his, his death. So. so how how did you channel his voice? Because I find that as you mentioned, you you wrote him in a different format, not quite intentionally poetry, but it does read and look like poetry. Um, it, there's so much innocence there, um, but th- but it holds a lot of weight, especially towards the you know the latter part of the book. So, you know, yeah, I'm wondering how you channeled that that innocence in that voice. Yeah, it was quite hard getting that voice right as well, and I've I had a lot of conversations with my you know, my editor and, and my writing group about like what he should sound like because he's a he's I think he's seven, but I can't seven. remember now. But I think seven. he might be seven. I think I remember changing. So he might have been five when I sorry, but then I I think we settled on seven. Because again it was like we wanted him to sound young, but then we also wanted him to sound quite wise because he's a ghost and, and that's how you picture ghosts, right? That's quite mm-hmm. those those wise souls. So um and then on the page, um, readers can see that the the sentences are not a straight line, and they kind of wander, and and it, it looks a bit messy on the page. But that's to 
you know, visually um, illustrate that idea of wandering and of him being not settled. Um, but so, yeah, I think it took a few drafts to get that voice right and to to make it consistent in some ways. Um, but it was a bit, yeah, trials and error <laughs> for a little bit. I think you guys did a good job. You did a good job. Your team did a good <laughs> job. Um, and I, without overtly saying so, especially part... I said here part two in my notes, but it actually is part three, delves into the impact of generational trauma. So your book spans decades, Wandering Souls spans decades. Um, is this is generational trauma in particular that term something that you were intentionally looking to explore? Did it just come naturally with the with the nature of the the content that you were delving into? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think even just just for me, you know, the because the book is personal and it's it's a story that affected me and and I'm the kind of second generation, right? Um mm-hmm. so it's something that I think I, I had to explore because it's so close to me and so personal. Um and I I was really interested in the idea that one event can just trickle down generation and affect um the sons and daughters of refugees as well in, in ways that you sometimes don't expect as well, I think. Um and I also wanted the book to reflect the idea that you can inherit a story in a non-linear, non-straight way. So, so the way I learned about my my mom's story wasn't was through pieces and of and pieces that I learned throughout the year. Of like one year, she would tell me one event that happened on on the at, at the camp, and then the next year, my dad would tell me an extra bit of information. And then it was also through doing my own research that I learned and managed to kind of piece together the my family history. Um, as well, and so I, I wanted the book to to show that as well that it's it's sometimes up to us to to piece together our own stories and our own uh, past as well. Um, but I also wanted the book to not be just about trauma, right? And I wanted the hope to be the key thing of the book, and the key thing that readers uh, took out from from the book was that you can heal from trauma, and you, there's there's always hope as well. So, and I, I don't want, I don't like to give away spoilers, um, but there's something that happens towards the end that brings, I'm not, I'm not going to mention, I mentioned it in my notes to you and you very graciously let that go, but I, I think I'm going to say what happens for the reader. Um, but for anybody listening who wants to go back, it's on page 218. I don't know if the pages are, are the same, you know, per... <laughs> per edition, so, but in, yeah. in my edition, it's page 218. <laughs> Let me tell you, I was reading it at my kitchen table on a Saturday morning, just, you know, enjoying my coffee. And next thing, my husband looks over to me and I, there's just tears oh. streaming down my face. And I was, I eventually got to sobbing. It was just, I didn't expect, I don't know why I didn't expect it. It's not this huge groundbreaking plot twist either it's just the it's I called it poetic closure at that's tragic and beautiful at the same time the the human experience of that closure in relation to the topic of wandering souls just spoke to me in such a deep way and so beautifully unexpected thank you that's very kind (laughs) (laughs) I I told myself I've got to hold myself together while bringing (laughs) that back up um do you feel that the book itself brought you the same closure or did it just 
was it just did it just give you insight you know um to process your own history you know was it a vehicle to process your own history or, or was it did you get that same sense of you know poetic closure uh, for sure I think I I really did I wrote the book when I was I think 20 you know 23 24 when I was kind of becoming an adult and and uh, trying to learn more about my my identity and you know I think I was maybe feeling a bit disconnected as well from my Asian heritage because I grew up in in Europe uh so I I was the book came of a need for me to to feel closer to that heritage and to learn more about my my past as well and and I think this book really did that and it helped me and my family I think as well um get that same sense that there is in the book of, of catharsis and that writing it feels a bit grand saying it like that and a bit like pretentious maybe but no, just that yeah you know, but that's is yes <laughs> but that you know there like stories can help us heal I really believe that and mm. and you know that book was a way of of just yeah I think processing a lot of of the horrible things that happened to to my family and and make something good in a way um out of it which was very I think healing I've been uh, reading Rebecca Kwong's Yellow Face, um, and there's a and you've mentioned it as well. There's a lot of mention of East Asian diaspora fiction, um, and as I'm reading Yellow Face, I keep going back to you know um, Atina and Liu and Yellow Face, and I keep thinking about Wandering Souls and the book that that um, is that comes to fruition in Yellow Face. Um, it it just all kind of connects for me and it, it's given me sort of a deeper insight into into your book and your book has given me deeper insight into her book. So do you consider, was it an, was Wandering Souls an intentional contribution to diaspora fiction or that, that was just you, you know, wanting to write your story and your family's story? Um, I think... It, it, I think first and foremost, it was just me wanting to write the book that I felt I needed to write, and um, and the book I was a bit healing to me as well. I was, I think, especially because I worked in publishing when I was writing it, I was also very much aware that there was a bit of a gap in the market, uh, which was the kind of much more objective side of, of me writing this book, right? That there was a gap mm. in the market, and there was just not a lot of East Southeast Asian stories, and especially East Southeast Asian stories happening in the UK um and so and I think I was aware that there was maybe a slight growing appetite for these kind of stories which kind of brought me hope and I was thinking you know I was writing first and foremost for myself but also thinking like I feel like maybe this is the right moment for this this story to to come out and I wasn't the first one and I came um when I was writing the book you know um East Side Voices came out which is um a collection of of um, essays by uh, edited by Helena Lee, which is about with um, South East and Southeast Asian writers um, as well writing essays. You know, there's lots of great poets like Mary Jean Chan and Will Harris and and so on. So I, I was definitely not like the first one, but I feel like the book I was writing the book at a moment when there was a growing um, literature of East and Southeast Asian British talents. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, now I'm very proud that the book is is part of that that um, diaspora and that, um, you know, it feels like we're at a kind of um, cornerstone moment. And there's other great books like um, Belize by Nicola Dinan and Ghost Girl Banana by Wiz Wharton, who are also coming out this year. Um, 
for contributing to that literature. And so I'm, I'm very happy that there is a kind of moment happening now. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I I was hesitant to say, you know, do I live under a rock or is there <laughs> a growing appetite for this? And no question on that, just to say that I'm so glad that there is a growing appetite for these stories because obviously um, Southeast Asian culture ha- is so rich in storytelling and in, in heritage and it's it just fascinates me and I'm really, really glad that this is ha- that it's having its moment, you know, and, and you can see it happening in the zeitgeist in both, you know, fiction and you can see it happening in television and, and generally pop culture. But it's it's so as Yellowface has has indicated, it's so important how the sto- story is told and who tells the story. So um yeah, all I can say is I just I'm just I'm just a reader. Just keep it coming. <laughs> um, on that note, about keeping it coming, you are, if I'm not mistaken, you're currently working on your first, your second novel. Excuse me. What can readers expect from the next contribution? How, and how's the writing process going? Yeah, um, it's slowly go- going at the moment. I just moved house. So I was kind of oh hectic last few weeks, but I'm I'm starting work on it. Um, now and I, I'm, I think I just want the second book to be quite different from the first one and maybe less personal in some ways because this book took a lot out of me, you know, because uh, it was personal and, and quite both very healing but also mentally draining at some times. And so I think in book two will be more contemporary, um, maybe a love story, <laughs> like uh-huh. or at least kind of element to that. But I can't say too much about yet because it's still in the the early stages but I'm very excited to go back to to a new project and kind of learn more about myself as well and and obviously I'm a full-time writer now so so just I'm still learning how to like write during the day (laughs) now and and just it just feels great to have more time as well to to write and not having to cram my writing between like 10 p.m and and 2 a.m so I'm, I'm very excited isn't it weird to feel less rushed? I would imagine because, um, you know, I'm I'm a student in in creative writing, so I am a writer. I'm a writer by profession. I'm a journalist, um, and it's different. Creative writing is different, as I'm sure you, you toggled the same. You know, you you straddled the same two worlds or similar two worlds when you when publishing versus you know being a writer you dealt with text all day long and like I do I deal with text either through reading or writing all day long and then you got to come to a creative space and now I would imagine (laughs) there might be some days that you have this whole day ahead of you that's exciting and and other days that you're like I just need the pressure of a deadline I don't know how does it (laughs) how does that feel how do you manage that yeah, I mean, and I'm definitely someone who, like, you know, at uni, I would write my essays, like, the day before the deadline. Like, <laughs> I'm very much the kind of deadline person. So it's a new, new concept. I'm not, like, you know, there are definitely days where I'm not being productive enough. and um, But I think it's also telling myself that that's okay if I don't write, you know, 500 words every day. And, and I think also it's important for, for me and my process to take the time to read and you know, go out for walks and go to museums and just feel inspired by di- different things because I think that's um, also for me just the how I get the best writing out of me is, is just by feeling, you know, not just being at a desk all day and, and feeling that pressure to 
to write uh, as well. Um, I say that now, maybe when I'm closer to like <laughs> my actual like deadline for the, the novel, I'll be like more stressed. But um, um, yeah, for now, I'm just still learning about what, what works best for me um, as well. But we'll see. <laughs> because, I mean, you're used to writing in, in, the, in the evening. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know... I mean, for for all my sins, Cecile, I write best and I'm most productive in all my work, um, whether it's creative work or all my usual work at like three, four in the afternoon, which nowadays happens to be the time that I need to be fetching my children from school and (laughs) getting homework and dinner done. It's it's not working out for me creatively. (laughs) (laughs) So I've had to kind of... I, I, I so relate to that because you kind of have to toggle and be like, I need to now find different ways of being productive, <laughs> right? Exactly. So I'm trying to like just reboot myself, yeah. basically. I- um, yeah. So, and, you know, and I, you know, my partner as well, like as someone who goes to bed at like 10 p.m. <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> trying to adjust as well. And I'm just trying. And it's easier in the summer, right? Because... Mm. Um, well, I guess it's probably winter in South Africa. It's winter. It's winter. <laughs> <laughs> but here it's summer, so it's actually easier for me to get up early in the morning and, and try and like, I try usually to read in the morning and then write in the afternoon, um, which is kind of nice. I think I just need to kind of set myself a routine. It is key when you're trying to write a, a big writing project, isn't it? Mm. So is that <laughs> is that something that you would advice that you would give to aspiring writers is to to find that routine or find what works for you what what has been a bit of a silver bullet that's that you went okay yes this makes sense yeah I think I think definitely try and figure out what works best for you because you get so many people trying to give you advice right and you always see those writers who say like well I wake up at 8 a.m and don't leave my desk until I've written like a thousand words and then you have each writer has their own technique and I think it's really about taking the time to figure out what works best for you and what gets your creativity going and and not feel like you need to do like that other writer that you admire and so on because you're you're just all different and you you know what makes him a good writer is will be different for for you as well so yeah don't listen to too many advice Mm, (laughs) would mm. would be my advice um and lastly before I ask you to to lend us your voice, um, what are you currently reading? What's on your bedside table? And I'm, I'm asking you because you are in the process of also being productive. Bonnie Garmus, author of Lessons in Chemistry, mm. told me a few weeks ago, she if she's writing, she doesn't read fiction. She focuses on nonfiction so that she can focus on her fiction. And then you have other oh. writers that kind of gain inspiration from from reading. So what do you what do you prefer and what's currently on your bedside table? Yeah, I usually go through kind of a binge reading phase where I'll read a lot and I'll read both fiction and nonfiction. I don't care. And then I'll do that. I'll read maybe like, you know, twenty books a month or something. And then I'll once I've done that I'll go I'll write uh, more intensively. Uh, but I'd always try to have like one book going even when I'm writing. And I, I guess I re- used to read more nonfiction, but in the, in the last couple of years, I've just been reading more fiction. But um, I'm not sure why that is. I think maybe just more, I'm craving more escapism. Mm. <laughs> um, but I've, so right now, I just finished reading The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan, um, which is coming out in 2024, but it, which is a really 
brilliant book about uh, Malaysia during the Second World War uh, when it uh, was occupied by the by Japan. Um, so that was uh, a really great book that I really enjoyed. Um, and then um, I started reading the uh, Italo Calvino's uh, Cosmic Comics um, short stories. Um, so yeah, I tried to kind of have a mix of contemporary and maybe more classic literature as well and not... I, yeah, I just try to read quite broadly, really. And you're you're <laughs> multilingual. Do you only read in English? Um, yeah, I I should try. <laughs> I am trying to read more in French because French is my my mother tongue. But I've mm-hmm. kind of just haven't been reading in French a lot lately. But I I it's something that I'm trying to do more. Um, and the book is coming out in French in yes, August as well. <laughs> so I'm starting to do a bit of promo in French. Um. So yeah, I'm, uh, that's part of my kind of to-do list in the next few months is read read more in French as well. But you didn't translate the novel yourself. No, I I just thought that it would be best to let them have a translator, and it's a, <laughs> you know it's such a different job I think to translate, and I wasn't sure I would have been able to to do it justice. So I, you know, Karen Chicharro is the translator, and then they very kindly sent me the translation and made me do as many edits as I wanted. So I, I made a few comments, but I, I was keen to let the translator, um, you know, be creative. And I, and I kind of trusted her her instincts as well. And I think she did a great job as well. Oh, that's, I, I kind of wish I could read <laughs> in <laughs> French. I wish I was multilingual in that way so that I could enjoy it. I, I can't imagine what it would be like reading. Well, I do, I suppose. I, I do read in a different in a different language, but not like I do in English. So I can relate. Mm-hmm. It must be beautiful in French and it's, <laughs> it must be beautiful in all the languages. In fact, <laughs> I was on your website earlier today and the novel, I'm just peeking at all of the the stunning covers. <laughs> Have you got them all in all of the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, France, Germany? It's yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? I I haven't I don't have the Netherlands and the French copies yet. Um, I think the French copy hasn't printed yet. But yeah, otherwise I all have them in in my new flat. No, so not with me right now. But yeah, it's it's been so nice to see the different covers, and I think they all did such a great job. Um, yeah, and I think there are a few more coming out next year as well. So very exciting. So <laughs> exciting. I'm really thrilled for you. I'm really thrilled for this process. I'm thrilled to when it comes out read your your second novel and no oh. pressure by any means take your time <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the process um it's just such a pleasure to meet you and i i want you to lend your voice in english now to us and to read an extract from wandering souls if you don't mind um and just to also contextualize it for the reader so this we found we we don't really know who this narrator is and i have to say I don't know whether I'm, I'd be alone in this, but I assumed it was your voice mm-hmm. because I had looked into your history. I mean, I, does it say on the back? I don't know. I don't know where I read it or had I Googled it that, you know, this was partly based on your on your own history. So I assumed that these parts were your voice. And I'll, I'll leave it up to the reader to figure out who it is. But, yeah, if you could contextualize it for us and then read that extract for us we're reading from page 63 and 64 on my edition sure so yes this is um a chapter which arrives quite early on in the novel um about a, a quarter through and this is um 
a kind of unknown narrator who's trying to piece together um, uh, the story of the Vietnamese boat people. So you're not quite sure who she is yet. And there's, I wanted the book to have that sen- that bit of tension on purpose and at the end for readers to realize and feel that sense of, of um, you know, relief once they kind of figure out what exactly who she is and so on. But so I'm um, just going to go, go straight for it. So I realized that there's a lot more I could say. I could tell people about the rapes and murders, the whispers of cannibalism. I have read testimonies in books and papers and encyclopedias, and these accumulated learnings have become my burden. But how much should I include? Sometimes I get tempted to go to the other way too, to correct the past by rewriting it. Perhaps I could write something like this. They arrived in Hong Kong and their parents and younger siblings arrived a few weeks later, Baby Huang waking up from a long nap in his mother's arms. Down his brothers played a football game with the other children in the camp, their mothers looking on from a bench. Mayan Van, inseparable as always, whispered and giggled to one another about their classmates and Mrs. Jones. And after a brief stint at the camp, they all flew to America, where they were welcomed with open arms. Yes, that would be tempting to give them a happy ending. Or perhaps I could go further. I could add, add twists and turns to build intention. I could ride an emotional roller coaster. I could explore the boat more, for example. Yes, perhaps I should. Or perhaps I could point fingers. I could blame politics. I could blame war and poverty and pirates in the sea and the storm. But the more I go on, the more I realize that nothing is to blame and everything is to blame intertwined in a medley of cause and effect, history and nature. I am trying I am trying to carve out a story between the macabre and the fairy tale so that a glimmer of truth can appear. Mm, that's beautiful. It was my most most marked section in the book. And so it was such a pleasure to hear it straight from the author. Thank you so much, Cecile Penn. And, and thank you for joining me on TDE's Current Read. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sam. I had such a lovely time. 